I think a materialist approach to things is very, very consistent with uh, my experience in Christian social justice. I feel like the, the deeper I get into anarchist practice, the deeper my faith is getting at the same time. I would hope that you know, securing means of life for all would be something all people of faith would say, oh yes, that's at the basis of what we believe. Those who are most marginalized know the most about the truth, good and the beautiful. To me, it's less that I think building class solidarity is a bad thing, as much as it seems like if you don't attend to things like anti-black racism, um, that's always going to get in the way of building class solidarity, actually. And when you go back, you find that a lot of uh, revolutionary grassroots participatory movements, the, the precursors to what you could call um, the barrio assemblies and these like, you know, grassroots neighborhood organizations, a lot of these were sponsored by the church. What does it mean to say that the Christian tradition is internally contradictory and there are antagonisms there? Um, you're always uh, being faithful to some aspects and betraying other aspects. Welcome to The Magnificast, a podcast about Christianity and leftist politics. I'm Dean Detloff. I'm a PhD student at the Institute for Christian Studies in Toronto. I'm Matt Bernico, and I teach media studies at Greenville University in Greenville, Illinois. This week, we're going to spend some time talking about the Diggers, a sort of proto-communist, uh, or I guess in some ways actually communist, uh, <laughs> like pre-Marxian communist group. Uh, of Christians in England during the English Civil Wars. Uh, a lot of really wild stuff. Um, specifically, talking about this guy, uh, Gerard Wynn Stanley, who wrote a bunch of things uh, related to the movement and coming out of that movement. But before we do that, uh, we have some really fun Magnificast news. Uh, we sent an email to a pastor about socialism. We'll get into that in a second. Uh, but first, we've got an iTunes review. All right, so our iTunes review is five out of five stars. Obviously, makes sense. Title is Straight Gold. Oh uh, yeah. Uh, okay, so this user writes, If you're a Christian wondering how you should relate to the political sphere or shape the structures which, which influence us all, then this podcast is for you. Not only are the two hosts as hilarious as they are thought-provoking, but I'm sure you'll find that every minute spent listening is more worthwhile than the last. All in all, a <laughs> 10 out of 5 show. I think that's like 10, wow. 10 stars out of 5, which is an improper fraction and uh, kind of hurts my head. But okay. Thanks for that good uh, iTunes review. Uh, keep them coming because that helps us out. Uh, gives us some more visibility in the old iTunes store. So keep uh, keep giving them to us. All the stars. We're like Mario. Getting them all going to build our own constellations. Uh, all right. Well, uh, now we're going to make a patented Magnificast transition to a, a new uh, Magnificast uh, segment that we're going to start doing. Probably this one time only. Uh, this is a new segment called Answers from a Pastor. All right. So here's the setup. Um, there is a website that we found called preachitteachit.org. And uh, preachateacher.org lets you email a pastor, uh, and so we did. That's the whole. That's the whole gag. So we emailed uh, a pastor about socialism, and this is what happened. So we asked him a question. Uh, we didn't use our real names or our or the name the Magnificast. So that's probably dishonest of us, but whatever. Um, <laughs> uh, we're Christians, and we'll be hypocritical, so it's fine. Um, anyways, we just asked him uh, about the church in Acts and if uh, Jesus was a socialist, and he said some things back to us. And these are what Pastor these are Pastor Rogers' remarks about socialism. Uh, okay, so he says this: 
This is a matter of context and history. The book of Acts is what is known as a transitional book, which portrays the bridge between Pentecost and the teaching and the epistles and the persecutions of the first century. I've never seen that in the scholarly literature, I have to say, a transitional book. Yeah, for sure. Acts 2 and 4 describe the behaviors of the early church, uh, Christians in coming together with their common needs. However, by the time Paul's persecutions and killings against the Christian church, I think he's, okay, he's not... Paul didn't kill anybody. I think he's referencing sort of like the uh, the murder of Christians by the Roman Empire. Okay, this is one of those comma importance of commas illustrations. But he but uh, he's too busy preaching it and teaching it to put commas in here. Um, let's see. So they were living in their uh, their own homes, according to First Corinthians chapter eleven. They came together on the first, uh, and they went to worship to absorb. Oh my gosh, to observe the Lord's Supper. Uh, Pastor Roger, you need to spell check. Uh, however, we may look at it. Uh, we, however, we may look at it. Uh, any sort of communistic behavior is not normative today for the Christian Church. Yeah, no kidding. Uh, the most obvious answer may well be, of course, he was a socialist, uh, referring to Jesus. However, frankly, there's more biblical evidence that he was a capitalist than a socialist. So, um, Pastor Roger goes on to back up those extremely uh, intense claims um, with an answer he gave to someone else. Uh, when they asked him this question. So Pastor Roger continues, As best as I can tell, Jesus never addressed the validity of a socialist society. He was quite concerned with ministering to the needs of the down and outs of society. He fed the hungry. 5,000, John 6, 1 uh, through 15, in Matthew 25, 34, he praised those who cared for the poor and needy. So to answer your question, I spent the last hour covering the Gospels, and I can find no passage where Jesus even remotely hinted at the concept of socialism. Yeah, I mean, that makes sense, Pastor Roger. Uh, he, uh, you know, praised those who helped the poor and the needy. He fed a bunch of people. Nothing about nothing socialist about that. That's true. That's pretty capitalist, if you ask me. I would say that's extremely capitalist. Um, <laughs> well, okay. Uh, so Pastor Roger has some really weird takes on Jesus. Um, I, it feels like he just wants him to be a capitalist so hard, uh, even though <laughs> the deck is stacked against him, but whatever. <laughs> uh, so Roger doesn't think Jesus is much of a socialist. Dean, what do you think about uh, Pastor Roger's uh, statement here? <laughs> well, first of all, really kind of Pastor Roger to take a break from all that preaching and teaching to send us this email um appreciate that good faith endeavor uh i think that there's a lot going on here i mean it's it's easy to kind of rip on it but one argumentative trope that i have seen in a lot of other cases when i've uh when there was a time in my life when i argued with pastors and one, one trope that they used uh comes up here uh where pastor roger says uh communist behavior is not normative for the christian church um, so like that normativity language is something that passages use a lot to dismiss what's going on in Acts 2 and 4. And what they mean by that is that, uh, the kinds of, just because like people did stuff in the early church doesn't mean that that's like a rule forever, that that's a kind of normative standard by which other churches should be judged. So for them, they look at this more as a kind of descriptive moment, you know, like, yeah, they happened to do this for whatever reason, but there's no kind of like binding weight on that decision. Uh, but the supreme irony of that is that these are oftentimes the same pastors who will absolutely stress the normative weight of, say, like gender relationships or gender roles in uh, like New Testament communities yeah. or letters. 
Um, so you get this really kind of annoying double standard, uh, and there's all kinds of hermeneutical tricks that allow passers to ignore what's in the Bible on that score. Um, but I think it's just like, it's an interesting point to kind of highlight because it does show up a lot as a way that Christians use to, um, read these passages and essentially make them useless or totally meaningless for us today. Yeah, for sure. That normative thing is actually really interesting because I mean, like basically this is like a, an argument based on tradition or something. Um, but as I learned this week, I, I mean, like tr- tradition in terms of Christianity is extremely sort of like loosey goosey, like tradition adapts to sort of the social situations that it's in. This is a conversation that we were ha- having on Twitter the other day. Um, and uh friend of the Magnificast, John Heaps chimed in and said that, well, it's, tradition isn't a problem. It's nostalgia, like people's sort of nostalgia for uh the good old days when, there are only two genders or something is sort of like the the root of that normative behavior in a church that people want to stick to rather than it being like sort of like a hard and fast tradition. Yeah, that's true. And it, it's funny, um, as you were saying, it, I actually hadn't thought of it in that angle either, that uh, the assumption is that there is, there is a kind of normative thread that Christians should pay attention to. But like what, what happens in Acts 2 and 4 just doesn't belong to it. Like that's yeah. not the part of the normative thread that we want to build or or. or weave together or something like that that's a really weird kind of take it is such a weird take because it's like in the bible (laughs) (laughs) yeah but since it's transitional you know maybe not (laughs) that's right uh it's also strange because acts two and four are motivated by basically the apostles first encounter with like the spirit being poured out in the world yeah like if there was ever a normative moment in the book of acts you would think it would be like what christians felt compelled to do after they encountered the holy spirit or something but i guess not yeah exactly well that's weird um so a lot of weird stuff going on here with roger um but he he preached it he teached it so what else can we say what else can we expect from him uh we can only be preached to and learn that's all that's it um bad students this time around but maybe next time yeah. Uh, we are going to email a few more pastors and just see. Uh, we've emailed a couple others, but they haven't got back to us yet. So, you know, don't don't let them know. It's like so weird to me. So like almost every church or every sort of like ministry-esque website has this sort of function built on it where you can email a pastor and ask them a question. Uh, it is wild. I can't believe that's something that anyone would want. I can't even imagine like having my own personal website. It's like, don't <laughs> don't contact me. How about? <laughs> it's kind of like a strange curious cat just for churches <laughs> pastor cat <laughs> yeah that's right pastor cat uh curious catholic um should be one for sure i don't know why that doesn't exist <laughs> but we've got to find it yeah pastor roger uh he's got some frankly dumb ideas about the bible uh so let's not focus on him anymore instead Let's talk about a guy who had some very cool ideas derived from the Bible uh, to build a kind of socialist vision, Gerard Wynn Stanley. Um, so there's a bunch that we can kind of talk about, but we'll set the stage, I guess, a little bit first historically, and then we'll move over to a, a document that Wynn Stanley wrote called The True Leveler's Standard Advanced. Not a very catchy title, uh, <laughs> but a very cool document nonetheless. Well, yeah, it was written before branding was uh, introduced to the world, so you can't <laughs> expect too much out of it. Yeah, it's a bad slogan. So uh, there's a lot of really interesting historical background here. Um, 
stuff that people should research a lot more than we're going to do here. Uh, but when Stanley comes around the time of a series of civil wars in England, and there's all kinds of really crazy factions going on, there's monarchists, there's parliamentarians, there's a, a, a group called the Roundheads, pretty exciting. Um, and he belongs to a group that's sometimes known as the Diggers and other times known as the True Levelers, but kind of more commonly today, I guess, the Diggers. So there's a, a number of really good historical studies, and Marxists especially have a ton of interest in the Diggers because they're kind of a uh, an important moment of like class consciousness um, during a sort of period of primitive accumulation, so we'll talk more about that later. But one really good overview that we found comes from the Monthly Review, which is a Marxist magazine um, or journal full of really great articles, uh, I guess is a free plug for them. Uh, Matt bought me a subscription to them for uh, my birthday last year, so uh, I'm pretty happy about it. Um, they have an article in there that's really fun, uh, and it is called hold on, uh, When Stanley's Ecology, the English Diggers Today, by a guy named Daniel Johnson. So the article is kind of just like an attempt to do like an extremely Marxist <laughs> reading of the diggers, in some cases a little bit too Marxist, actually. Um, but you do get a nice little summary of some of the history. So we'll just kind of introduce a couple of paragraphs here. So I'll read one and then I'll pass it over to you, Matt. Um, so uh, the article says, When Stanley and the Diggers were unique among political groups in the English Revolution in their advocacy for the interests of the impoverished rural working classes. Integral to this support was a unique concern with land use and the environment and their constant emphasis on common access to resources for use over wasteful private consumption. Ultimately, for when Stanley and the diggers' economic inequality and exploitation, state violence, and the destruction of the earth were deeply interrelated processes, a radical transformation in social relations, the abolition of private property, and the establishment of a free commonwealth based on reason and secular education was required. The first diggers' colony appeared on St. George Hill near Cobham the beginning of April 1649, seven years after the outbreak of civil war and two months after the beheading of Charles I. Though initially just five diggers began to plant parsnips and carrots and beans on the admittedly barren commons, their numbers grew thereafter. Um, somebody else cited that there was 100 to 200 people at, uh, at uh, St. George Hill. From such moss beginnings, it was envisioned would emerge a revolutionary movement for the ultimate goal of the diggers on St. George's Hill was no less than to make the earth a common treasury for all through shared agricultural labor on commonly held land. The diggers would thus till the commons and wastes of England collectively, withdrawing their labor from commercial society. They would decommodify social relations and establish the true levelers relationship with the earth. Once the common people saw the success of the digger experiment, they would refuse to labor for wages any longer and would work to create free associations of communist commonwealths in England and throughout the world. By laboring in the earth in righteousness together, the true levelers intended to, quote, lift up the creation from the bondage of civil propriety, which it groans under. So there you have it. Uh... Maybe, like, a little bit more before we get into some of the, like, theory or motivations or stated positions of uh, the diggers. Um, there's a really great article that you also may want to read by um, uh, Roland Bohr, um, who does a lot of work on communism and Christianity. And he talks about the diggers uh, in the context of sort of Christian revolutionary readings of the Bible. 
Um, a really good counterpoint, actually, to some of the themes that happened in the monthly review. But uh, in that article, you get a little more historical background. And one thing that Bohr notes is that the uh, guy who was like the the would-be landowner of that area, St. George's Hill, uh, was a guy named Francis Drake. Not the like famous explorer Francis Drake, just a coincidentally named Francis Drake. The lame one. Uh, the lame Francis Drake. Yeah. The, <laughs> I mean, they're both lame, but yeah. this one is especially lame right now um he uh obviously didn't like the diggers hanging out on that land for reasons that we'll kind of get into a little more uh and he ended up hiring a bunch of uh thugs to like beat them up and uh that was pretty bad news they burned down a bunch of digger buildings and like ruined their home uh in order to kick them off the land and they did eventually successfully do that uh the diggers collapsed as a result of it um and they were also famously sort of non-violent so i guess keep that in mind but yeah really interesting sort of brief experiment in like christian communism on a very small local scale so the operative word in that sentence there is experiment because it did last a really short period of time um there's some i i guess there's some different uh different ways that people kind of divide up the time of this period but the um i think the most intense time or the most active time of the diggers was between 1649 and 1650 so it was all it all started and ended really quickly um but there were um people sort of inspired by this movement and that did other things um kind of around the same time too so it's not like this was like happening in a bubble either it was uh an experiment that had an effect on the the common people of, of england yeah, exactly. And it also kind of connects to some other uh, revolutionary Christian energies around uh, the Reformation period. Um, Thomas Munzer is maybe the most obvious um, contemporary or colleague of uh, Win Stanley in Germany, uh, who led a, a violent peasants' revolt and had a very revolutionary idea of the Bible as well, and was sort of attractive to a bunch of Marxist theorists, including Engels, who wrote a ton of stuff about Munzer. Um, but it's interesting because when Stanley is sort of like, I guess the, the nonviolent English version, uh, and then Munzer is the violent German version of a kind of radical Christian opposition to an emerging capitalism. We'll circle back around to Munzer at the end of the podcast. Um, but it's important to explore a little bit more of these historical contexts. Uh, the primary factor that motivated the diggers was, uh, what's called the enclosure of public lands. So basically this is just what it sounds like. The common land that the peasants worked on in the past uh, was legally seized by the government and then um, made private and like parceled off to private entities. That's like the birth of private property, or it is a reinforcement of private property in a society. Um, what happened is so weird because it's just like so arbitrary sounding, but uh, it is actually like the beginning of capitalism as we know it, at least. Um, or it is the continuation of capitalism for sure. Uh, so what happened was the peasants were working the land, uh, the common land between them. Uh, they got kicked off the land and then hired back as wage laborers. So it's like um, get off the land, come back onto it, but only under these conditions. Uh, I guess it's just weird how arbitrary this whole process is. Uh, but the enclosure of land is basically uh, how you get a proletariat. It's what Marx calls primitive accumulation. Yeah, and that arbitrariness is actually one thing that Win Stanley will point out. Uh, that this is a totally imaginary process, but it's an imaginary process that is um, held up by force and by state force in particular. 
Um, so, you know, the diggers, for example, when they, so one reason that they're called, that they're associated with the levelers and why they call themselves the true levelers is that they wanted to level <laughs> all these enclosures, um, to abolish private property itself. And they, uh, held these lands, you know, for like a year. And at the end of the day, like they got pushed off by force, uh, so that some people could legally own them and then they wouldn't be able to be there anymore. So there's something like, like there's a legal sort of, um, apparatus that allows enclosure to happen. And there's also a, a violent force behind it that makes sure that people don't challenge it. That's right. And they were the true levelers because they wanted to sort of abolish private property whereas the levelers which were another group at the time were like parliamentarians who wanted to uh level the playing field but like with private property specifically so that's kind of like the yeah the difference that emerges there well the the regular levelers they wanted to like uh like level the playing field precisely by preserving the right to private property whereas the true levelers thought that private property itself uh created the imbalance that needed to be leveled Right. There's something really Marxist going on there, though, in the sense that like one group could only think of like um, sort of the um, like a legal apparatus to kind of get to uh, equality. And the other group found like sort of like the the radical, like they found the root at the base of it. And then they went after that. I mean, there's it. They are so proto Marxist to Hertz. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> well, this will. Yeah, well, this whole process of primitive accumulation is something that Marx talks about a lot, and I thought we could kind of draw that out here a little bit because uh, it's kind of good to, uh, like, kind of juxtapose these two ideas in the sense that, like, Jardwin Stanley is responding to this. Um, Jardwin Stanley is responding to the enclosure of land. Like, he's responding to actual primitive accumulation, and then Marx goes and theorizes it, like, you know, um, like, later. Um, so, uh, for Marx, primitive accumulation is just like a part of capitalist accumulation. The word primitive kind of like makes you think like it happened a long time ago, but it's actually like a continuous process of, uh, capitalist accumulation. Primitive accumulation is always happening. It's always, capital is always looking for sort of more places that it can, uh, extract value and profit from, uh, in capital, uh, volume one, Marx says this in the history of primitive accumulation, all revolutions are epoch making that act as levers for the capitalist class in course of formation. But above all, those movements where great masses of men are suddenly and forcibly torn from their means of subsistence and hurtled as free and unattached proletarians on the labor market. The expropriation of the agricultural producer of the peasant from the soil is the basis of the whole process. The history of this expropriation in different countries assumed different aspects and runs through its various phases in different orders of, of succession. And at different periods, in England alone, which we can take as our example, has its classical form. So that's Marx is uh, referencing here exactly what happened uh, and sort of like that was what was behind sort of the diggers response. Um, so Jardwin Stanley has some really similar ideas in his writing, just basically what Dean said that like, you know, uh, on the one hand, like years before the enclosures, they're all living sort of farming and like living off of subsistence production. Um, but then a legal apparatus kind of comes along because of political unrest and um, like civil wars and stuff. Uh, and like they basically steal the land from the peasants. Chardwin Stanley has some similar ideas in his writing, but has a way more like explicitly Christian twist on them. It's like the, the Christian version of, of primitive accumulation. Um, so when Stanley locates the beginning of exploitation, 
um, and private property at like the event of original sin or the fall, uh, the fall of man, in the garden of Eden. Um, so summarizing when Stanley's position, because uh, it would take it some time to actually unpack it in its full form here. Uh, Roland Bohr says the fall also explained the origin of exploitation, hierarchy, the evil of monarchic rule, and above all the origin of private property. The effects of the fall must then be overcome by the means of a restoration of communal life. So the whole thing that uh, Jardwin Stanley is responding to is like he sees like um, the profound bad in the world, the exploitation in the world. And he sees it as a result of sin, which is a pretty interesting kind of Christian move. And the only way around that, the only way to get over that is to sort of like a, a realized eschatology that um, uh, restores maybe like a pre-fall kind of world. But uh, maybe not in like the weird sort of biblical literalist sense, but in like the uh, sense that like people like worked in common with one another without hierarchy before the fall. And then after you have to do the same thing. Yeah, that's right. Uh, so in the true leveler standard advanced, which functions as kind of like a, a defense of what the diggers are doing. So like Gerardwin Stanley and uh, some other people got arrested and they had to give a defense um, at a court. And eventually they wrote this thing called the, this this document that we're looking at, the True Level of Standard Advanced. Um, it functions as this kind of manifesto and a, and a defense at the same time. And so it's a really nice, like, condensed form of some of the ideas that motivated the diggers. And what you get is a really interesting political theology. Uh, we're not going to go in it, uh, we're not going to work through it in a kind of sequential way. Instead, we'll sort of pull out a few, like, themes that we think are interesting uh but the first one is private property itself um so kind of just uh i guess proving what boris says but also giving you an example of the kind of rhetoric that when stanley uses um he writes uh this civil propriety is the curse it, it is manifest thus those that buy and sell land and our landlords have got it either by oppression or murder or theft and all landlords live in the breach of the seventh and eighth commandments Thou shalt not kill nor steal. And uh, he he kind of breaks all those things down a little bit more, but I figured we'd just pull out the oppression part and uh, talk a little bit more about that. So he continues, They have, by their subtle imaginary and covetous wit, got the plain-hearted poor or younger brethren to work for them for small wages, and by their work have got a great increase. For the poor, by their labor, lifts up tyrants to rule over them. Or else, by their covetous wit, they have uh, outreached the plain-hearted in buying and selling, and thereby enriched themselves, but impoverished others, or else by their subtle wit, having been uh, lifted up into places of trust, have enforced people to pay money for public use, but have divided much of it into their private purses, and so have got it by oppression. So uh, basically when Stanley is saying all the people who have private wealth could only have gotten it by being immoral in one way or another... Uh, and that immorality oppresses people, especially because it preys on the sort of moral uh, expectations of the poor. Yeah, that's right. And then um, this kind of even expands on the last point, too. At the very first sentence that you read, uh, that this civil propriety is the cursed, is manifest thus. Like, the cursed here is referring to original sin, even. Like, uh, that's sort of, mm -hmm. like, at the root of all of this. Like, the reason that we segment society and, like, in these ways are because of like uh like firstly sin which is such a i mean like kind of like a wild way of thinking but pretty interesting nonetheless mm -hmm. 
Yeah, it's crazy too because you you really do get a uh, an explanation of primitive accumulation here, right? Like um, the idea that these landlords have a sort of imaginary plan, and then they end up uh, hiring people to work for wages uh, and um, by dr- first driving them off the land. Uh, I mean, those are ideas that you know Marx will theorize just a couple hundred years later, but when Stanley sees happening around him right there. Uh, which is pretty troubling and moving and uh, it's it's fascinating that he finds sort of like a a christian reason to oppose it because there are all kinds of people who actually opposed uh enclosures without without having christian reasons Uh, and also a lot of marxists want win stanley not to be a christian or like thinks they think that he's sort of a, a closeted materialist right um but if you read the document you actually get a really strong sort of christian theory of primitive accumulation which is a pretty like i don't know crazy thing to find like it's surprising how uh detailed it is in some ways yeah, for sure. Uh, we could probably talk about that a, a little bit more. That monthly review piece kind of emphasizes how uh, when Stanley was all about like secular reason, but I feel like that really ignores basically all of the religious language in uh, his writing, but also the religious form of his writing, like locating um, locating sort of exploitation in sin is like a, a profoundly Christian idea. So, I mean, I don't know. It just seems like a, an argument without legs or an argument that is... Uh, just ignorant for whatever reason Um, yeah i mean this is the same thing that Engels does with munzer he sort of treats him as someone who uses christian language because he thinks that that's the kind of language that will appeal to his audience uh but he doesn't really believe it like he's too smart for that uh you know deep down he's a a smart materialist who who would never believe in those kind of goofy ideas Mm -hmm. um but i think that does a real disservice to munzer and to with win stanley um, because there's a real sense in which their faith is clearly a, a motivating force. Um, I mean, when Stanley ended up being a Quaker at the end of his life and sort of like retiring from radical politics anyway, so the very trajectory of his life seems to suggest uh, that his faith isn't really like just an accident or just kind of like an ornament over the political thrust of what he's trying to do. Yeah, for sure. Well, there's some other stuff going on in this bit you just quoted here about private property that's pretty interesting too. Um I think this is another good way, like, um, something that we talk about on the Magnificast a lot is structural violence and, like, how that's a really important idea that people kind of don't understand. Um, But I think it's kind of implicit in the way that he's describing oppression here, um, especially within with regards to landlords, which is especially good, um, that uh, all landlords live in the breach of the Seventh and Eighth Commandments. Uh, mm-hmm. that kind of recognition that like to participate in, uh, in capitalism and to charge people to live in a space or to like work a certain amount of land, but like basically like, you know, you don't own it in anything else, any, any other sense than just like the legal sense, um, is sort of a, a violence. And I think that's a really good impulse to, uh, mark out here and to bring up all the time. <laughs> I don't know. That's just my thing. Yeah. That's what I like to, to do, but it seems important. Yeah, I would love for like uh <laughs> like Christian lefties in the US who take themselves to be really radical at like a uh, Congress or something or at protests or whatever. Um like I don't know, just say that people who are in Congress defending capitalists are breaking commandments like you shouldn't steal and you shouldn't kill. I mean, that's like a, right. <laughs> a pretty like forceful and powerful argument. But also like really straightforward. Yeah. Kind of the great thing about the 10 commandments is that they are extremely straightforward. <laughs> that's right 
Um, yeah, so the private property stuff, uh, there's a lot of other places in this document and elsewhere where when Stanley drives home that private property is bad and that uh, the, the diggers, the true levelers, want to abolish private property, not to expand it, uh, or not even to sort of level the playing field of accumulation, but to abolish that accumulation altogether. And one thing that's really fascinating about this is that when Stanley kind of roots this in a really profound ecological vision, and there, I guess we could talk about that a little bit more, um, there's a real sort of like eco-theology at work here that depends on uh, like the world being shared and being common. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'll read uh, one quote, and there's another one we get to later, but the first one's, I think, pretty straightforward. So he says, uh, if the earth is not pre- uh, peculiar to any one branch or branches of humankind, but is the inheritance of all, then it is free and common for all to work together and eat together. So the sort of thrust is that the earth belongs to everyone because it's given to everyone by God. So if you claim to be able to kind of take one part of it, you're betraying that gift and kind of like holding it, uh, which I think is a really fascinating point. I mean, it seems straightforward, but also like it isn't because people don't believe that, right? Mm -hmm. Like this is the argument you get from like libertarians all the time about stupid things like homesteading, right? Well, like I worked this, this land long enough, so I guess it's mine now. Uh, but the diggers are saying, well, the earth is, is given for everyone to work together on. It's it's not something that you can kind of uh, work long enough such that the, that part of the gift becomes exclusively yours or enclosedly yours, which I think is a pretty awesome thing to kind of insist on. Yeah, I agree. Um, it It changes like what it means to own something. I mean, basically, you can't own something, I guess. Yeah, for sure. Um, and it, it changes to how you relate to like the world around you that is uh, meant to be shared or like meant to be sort of given and uh, and like um, given and, and cultivated with other people. Like there's a sort of implicit communality already in his the- theology of creation. Yeah, definitely. Uh, well, following that same sort of eco-socialist line of thinking, uh, he goes on to say... Uh, <laughs> something that's kind of weird but pretty cool uh, a pretty weird reading of uh on your father and mother but uh but i'm here for it uh so he says and hereby you will honor your father and mother your father which is the spirit of community that made all and that dwell in all your mother which is the earth that brought us all forth that as a true mother loves all her children therefore do not hinder mother earth from giving all her children such by your enclosing it into particular hands and holding up that cursed bondage of enclosure by your power um that's a really kind of like a fun twist with some liberties taken in it i guess but uh it's pretty (laughs) cool uh but it's uh echoing that same point though that like um uh what is given is for all people and not just for a few um so to uh to enclose it, to give it to like one kind of person, to demarcate it and say, no, it's for this only, um, it's for the good of only this one group, is to do sort of a disservice to that what has been given, which I think is good. I don't know. I mean, this is there's uh, some resonances here with Catholic social teaching, too, though, that like um, you don't really own anything because God owns it all, which is, I mean, a fair point. Um, it's, a, it's an idea that like is completely, I mean outside of the norm for most christianity uh contemporary christianity but like i don't know let's make it a thing again (laughs) yeah that's right um there's also a really famous bit in capital where marx quotes this other guy uh william petty um 
and he says, hang on a sec. This isn't just in like the first chapter. Yeah, he says, okay, uh, labor is not the only source of material wealth, i.e. of the use value it produces. As William Petty says, labor is the father of material wealth. The earth is its mother. And uh, there's like some weird kind of gendered problems there yeah. that I think are fair for people to complain about and, and should be upset about. Uh, but I think that like um, there's some kind of continuity there that like uh, the parentage of the world or like of uh, these kind of in Win Stanley's terms, like uh, the spirit of community and uh, and also the earth itself sort of try to decenter the human individual in a really good way. Uh, so it's like these things were here before you and they also have a certain kind of hopefully healthy authority over you uh, that like you should honor your parents, right? Like community and the earth are supposed to be good parents and you should treat them really well and not abuse them or like take them for granted. Uh, yeah, for sure. Um, it puts humans in a different sort of like uh, register in the natural order of things, which is kind of cool. Yeah. Uh, I mean, a lot of people kind of the reason I bring up that Marx quote is that there's been a, a sort of renewed interest in Marx's ecological thought lately. Yeah. And a lot of people draw off of that um, to kind of make that point. And I think there's a real important like continuity there between uh, that moment in Marx's ecologism and Winstanley's. Yeah, I think so. So I think so far we've done a pretty good job of mapping out what Winstanley thinks the problem is with the world. Um, basically, people are trying to own things that they really have no business owning. Um, and that uh, those things actually belong to all people. So based on those two ideas about private property and like um, how people should live together, uh, Winstanley starts drawing out some, I think, some broader premises that uh, I think if we kind of abstract a little bit, we can kind of make them into some premises for Christian communism or for at least Winstanley's Christian communism. Um, so one thing that he says that's pretty cool is this. In the beginning of time, the great creator made the earth to be a common treasury to preserve beasts, birds, fishes, and man. In the beginning of time, the great creator made the earth to be a common treasury to preserve beasts, birds, fishes, and humans. The Lord was to govern this creation for humans had domination given to him over the beasts, birds, and fishes but not one word was spoken in the beginning that one branch of mankind should rule over another. Okay, so there's a sort of universality that's present here um, uh, that is really nice. Um, so humans are supposed to have sort of uh, dominion over the earth, which has, I mean, lots of people, people have said a lot of things about that in the past that we can talk about later. Um, but uh, something that uh, has never been said is that uh, one branch of mankind should rule over another. And that's like a pretty good point. Um, uh, God puts, uh, humans into the world in a particular place and lets them do certain things. But, uh, never once did God say, uh, that mankind should rule over one another. That's an idea that's kind of, uh, missing from our, uh, our theology and our, our politics at this moment. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Uh, or at least if there, if there ever is some kind of weird, crazy, <laughs> thing in the bible where like somebody's supposed to rule over someone else it's important that that is all a sort of condition of sin um and that's what when stanley's all about right that these things that people think are sort of natural uh, or are their right are in fact uh the result of sin or the consequence of sin on that point uh when stanley even has in his essay 
his pamphlet manifesto. I don't know what this, this thing even is. Um, but <laughs> he says he has this whole sort of like um, this like sort of chronology um, about uh, politics and Christianity, like in the Bible, where he like says like, okay, so the fall happens and it creates exploitation. Uh, but then um, a handful of things happen that are kind of good, like the like Moses and the the commandments, and then uh, Jesus. Like those things are kind of like part of like the good order or like the redemption of humans toward this common treasury. Um, but then there's some other bad things that happen, like um, like when Israel uh, wants a king. Like that's sort of like part of the the bad mm-hmm. things, like the conditions of sin that you just mentioned. So yeah, he has this whole chronology and a sort of theology uh, of history that's all there too. So another reason that it makes him hard to be sort of a secular person. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And even that way of tracing the biblical history as he does is similar to even people like Jack Lul, right? Yeah. Uh, I mean, we complain about it a little lot, but the one thing I do think is fun in Lul is his biblical reading of authority. Uh, where like anytime there's somebody who starts getting a little too much authority, God is upset about it. So, uh, like, the Moses thing makes sense for one Stanley to be a fan of because it's displacing the authority of the Pharaoh. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the uh, kings being bad, like, that's not even a, a sort of imposition on the text. Like, God is, like, really upset that Israel wants king, and he, like, complains about it to them. And then eventually he relents, and he's like, I mean, fine. If you want to, like, ruin your life, you can have one. <laughs> and then they do. <laughs> uh, so, like, when Stanley's on, like, pretty good biblical ground with that kind of reading. Yeah, I think so. Well, um, towards the end of the essay, uh, he starts like kind of making a plea to the powers that be in England. Uh, that I guess that's what gives this this kind of essay like a manifesto sort of vibe. So addressing the powers that be, uh, when Stanley says, "O powers of England, though you have promised to make this people a free people, yet you have also handled the matter through your self-seeking humor, that uh, you have wrapped us up more in bondage and oppression." That lies heavier upon us, uh, not only bringing us fellow creatures, the commoners, to a morsel of bread, but by confounding all sorts of people by your government of doing and undoing. So he's he's um, levying all of this, not just sort of as a theological text or a political theological text, but he's like actually like using this against the English government or like the sort of powers ruling over their people at that point. Um, and I think that's pretty cool. Uh, in the monthly review essay too, uh, the author mentioned that like when Stanley had this moment where he was just like, well, I got to stop writing. I got to actually do things. And I think that this is evidence of that uh, turning from just writing to doing and like kind of addressing um, the people at the root of the situation, at the root of the problem. Um, mm-hmm. That's cool. Yeah, it is. Um, there's a lot of really weird stuff with Win Stanley. Like he had some kind of phases of being a big fan of like Cromwell and stuff, which is not a good look. Right. Uh but I think that passages like this are helpful because um, at the at the kind of root of like all the chaos that's happening in the English Civil War and through these uh, this process of enclosure, uh, at least like at the very bottom, when Stanley's political theology is one that um, tries to recognize that like there's not um, there's not a good reason to have authority when that authority ends up. Uh, reducing human beings to like sheer survival or like to like wage labor or something like that. Um, I mean, I guess this is sort of the task you have to do with any historical figure, but um, you sort of have to find the, the like revolutionary impulse amidst all the other complicated issues um, and like push that a little bit. And this is one of those paragraphs that's really helpful in doing that, I think. Yeah, for sure. Well, 
after having addressed the problem, um, he has some other ideas about like what people should do um, and like what are the conditions that they should do it in. Um, so in another essay um, that's called Freedom in a Platform, uh, when Stanley says uh, this, does not Christ tell you that if you have food and raiment, you should therewith be content? And in this common freedom, here will be food and raiment, ease and pleasure, plentiful for both you and your brethren, so that none shall beg or starve or live in the straits of poverty. And this fulfills the righteous law of Christ. Do as you would be done by, for the law of Christ can never be performed till you establish commonwealth's freedom. So, like, in light of these uh, issues that he's locating like with, like, uh, enclosure and, like, the theft of property, um, what he's recognizing is that, like, um, there's something good about uh, the figure of Jesus. And the, the goal here, like, the only way that you can sort of, like, fulfill the righteous law of Christ is... Uh, is to do to do so like establish in a commonwealth like to to do in like among community like to actually do it it's not like um you get the feeling that you you can't do the christian kind of thing um within the context and the larger situation of sin like you have to actually like create another space for that um or at least that's how i read it what do you think dean yeah no i think that's right uh what really kind of turns me on about this is all that language about freedom because the i guess the the lie that ends up being told in capitalism about human beings is that you're the most free when you have no obligations mm-hmm. but when stanley actually completely inverts that here like you're most free when you're fulfilling your obligations yeah uh, I think that's something that's really profound. Um, it reminds me of this really weird passage in Galatians that I sometimes think about where Paul says uh, it's for freedom that Christ has set us free. And uh, it's such a cool moment because it's kind of, I mean, it's wrapped up in a lot of like weird stuff about slavery, but the the like main sort of concept that like you're free for the sake of freedom is like a really hard thing to kind of wrap your head around. And I think when Stanley actually does a good job explaining it here, that like you're free to live a free life, which means actually uh, sharing it with other people in a certain sense of abundance. Yeah, that's right. It's a different type of freedom than like uh, choosing between like 15 burrito restaurants. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Which is a, a really kind of unfree thing, right? There's, It's like not a very free feeling to be like paralyzed by choice. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, <laughs> riffing on that idea of freedom a little bit more, the conclusion of Win Stanley's uh, manifesto um, says uh, something pretty cool. He says, uh, kind of addressing again the powers that be, let Israel go free, that the poor may labor the wasteland and such the breasts of their mother earth, that they not starve. And in doing, you will keep the Sabbath day, which is a day of rest, sweetly enjoying the peace of the spirit of righteousness, and find peace by living among a people that live in peace. This will be a day of rest, which you never yet knew. Um, so the, the concluding point is just like, um, like, don't enclose this land. Let people work it so they don't starve. And like, that's it. Which is, I mean, like, a, I guess a really simplistic idea of like a proto-communism, but is kind of what is at the the basis of it, if you think about it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's true. Uh, I love too that it's sort of it's this vision of like peace that's shared, right? And the kind of thing that when Stanley is asking you to think about is why would you not want that? Uh, why would you not want a kind of day of rest where you could be among other people? Um, because the other weird thing about enclosures 
is that the process of primitive accumulation is violent and like not peaceful and not restful you have to be like constantly guarding your stupid (laughs) tract of land yeah uh like it sets in motion the process of processes of competition in capitalism that become really alienating and frustrating uh and i like that when stanley puts this in the kind of address of peace like don't you want to not have to worry about those kinds of things it seems like a pretty like good way of framing it yeah i think that's really cool um this past Sunday at church, a uh, friend of the show, John Bringham, uh, preached this cool sermon, and the tagline was, another Sabbath is possible. And it's the idea that, like, uh, I mean, it was it was a really low-key uh, critique of capitalism that you do, that you do in church, you know? Um, <laughs> but it's basically that idea. I mean, like, we spend so much time worrying about our schedules and, uh, and like, you know, our, our productive labor, and we don't do, uh, we don't do Sabbath. We don't like just like chill yeah. out. Um, yeah, uh, the Sabbath is very cool, a very cool thing to think about. Um, I think it's cool too to think of the diggers in terms of uh, like trying to establish a, a Sabbath like society, like one where you could actually have a reasonable Sabbath. And that's the kind of thing that they seem to suggest even at the very end of this document. So I'll read the last two paragraphs real quick. Um, and I think it's just a nice like summary of uh, what they're all about. So these these are the last words they want you to know after all this uh, <laughs> this cool theological, political, ecological thought. So when Stanley says, Thus we have discharged our souls in declaring the cause of our digging upon George Hill in Surrey, that the great council and army of the Lord may take notice of it, that there is no intent in tumult or fighting, but only to get bread to eat with the sweat of our brows, working together in righteousness and eating the blessings of the earth in peace. And if any of you that are the great ones of the earth, who have been bred tenderly, uh, and uh, cannot word do... Okay, I'm going to restart that paragraph. Yep. And if any of you that are the great ones of the earth, that have been bred tenderly, do bring in your stock into this common treasury as an offering to the work of righteousness, we will work for you, and you shall receive as we receive. But if you will not, but Pharaoh-like cry... Who is the Lord that we should obey him? And you endeavor to oppose, then know that he that delivered Israel from Pharaoh of old is the same power still, in whom we trust and whom we serve. For this conquest over thee shall be got not by sword or weapon, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Uh, that's a really nice sort of like theological threat at the end. Yeah. Um, didn't seem to work out that way, but it's a good uh, rhetorical move anyway. <laughs> yeah, no plagues over there, unfortunately. <laughs> unfortunately is or, right or maybe a lot of plagues <laughs> who knows really um yeah that's true maybe uh francis drake had like a ton of boils the next day yeah he got a big old boil on his butt <laughs> a real roundhead that one <laughs> real roundhead. uh yeah jardwin stanley is really neat he's got a lot of things to say um well maybe uh we can kind of wrap this conversation um with some of the like last remarks that roland bohr makes about uh munster and also when stanley is that cool dean yeah Mm-hmm. Okay, cool. Well, so at the end of uh, Roland Bohr's commentary on uh, the diggers specifically and Munzer, uh, he says this. So what is it about the Bible that enabled those like Munzer and Win Stanley to find such deeply, deeply revolutionary themes within it? The key lies, I would suggest, in the profound multivaliency of the Bible. It is both folly to the poor and scourge to the ruling class. 
On the one hand, sections of it may be used with great ease to justify all manner of class distinctions, subservience to the masters, and submission to a god of the rulers. On the other, it also contains a myriad of stories of rebellion, of rumbling against the rulers, of judgment against those who oppress, and it contains the various elements that have been the staple of Christian communism for centuries, if not millennia. While Munster seized on the apocalyptic judgments against his oppressors and inspired the peasants to revolt, when Stanley drew heavily on the images of communal life and justice for all, without distinctions in the terms of status, wealth, or power. Um, what I like about this ending that Bohr gives us is that, like, I don't know, the Bible can do a lot of things, which I think that we're pretty familiar with, especially after we read Pastor Roger at the beginning and wrapping up here, uh, hoping for Sir, uh, for Francis Drake to have boils on his butt. The Bible can do a whole bunch of things, uh, and uh, I think that Munzer and Win Stanley just found some particularly cool things it could do. Yeah, for sure. Uh, it gives you some nice rhetorical handles that you can use to make points that are not just uh, rhetorical, but actually material, like points that are motivating and challenging um, in in some ways that like uh, all the really good monthly review articles that I read every month, uh, some of them are like really illuminating and helpful, but like boring as hell. Yeah. And uh, sometimes you just want someone to be like... Uh, Hey, if you don't do this, we're gonna send plagues at you. Like, I'm I'm down with that. I can get behind that. Yeah. <laughs> That's not that scientific Marxism people are talking about, but it's pretty good still, I think. <laughs> That's right. Uh so you know what they say, listen to the Duggars. Wait. The the Diggers. <laughs> no, I'm pretty sure it's the Duggars. I'm pretty sure it's the Duggars over here. One commune and counting. Yeah. Uh, how is that not a thing? <laughs> how is that uh, obscure connection not a joke that we've made already? Uh, that's crazy. <laughs> this is probably, we probably should have started with this, but th- the diggers actually show up in, like, a ton of weird places, by the way. Oh, yeah? <laughs> like, yeah, like, uh, they, I mean, they show up in a lot of social stuff. Like, um, one crazy thing the Monthly Review article mentions is that Lenin, I guess, built this, like, obelisk in Moscow. And uh, when Stanley is named on it, like along with Marx and Engels, which is pretty crazy. <laughs> That's pretty good. Uh, I know. And then uh, during the 60s, there were like tons of hippies who were really into the diggers. And even today now, there's like a, an annual festival in the town where when Stanley was born, that kind of is like all about him. Uh, but my favorite place that he pops up is in a Chumbawamba song. Um, Chumbawamba, not just tub something, but also a genuinely cool leftist band. Yeah, uh, for sure. And they they re- recorded a song that I guess is like reportedly written by Win Stanley. Yeah, that's dope. Thanks for listening to the Magnificast. If you like what you heard, be sure to support us on Patreon. Um patreon.com slash the Magnificast. Uh any amount of money is like really great of you to give. If you don't want to give us any money too, that's okay. Just follow us on Twitter or uh Facebook. Uh, we have a cool Facebook group called the Magnificast Basement where we post all kinds of uh, articles and stuff. Man, Dean, did you see that thing about that church that was like, we're not going to call the cops anymore? Yeah, very cool. It was so good. Okay, well, if you want that type of content, if you want us to repost that type of com- content in your Facebook timeline, <laughs> that's where you got to go. That's where you got to go to get uh, it. I also just uploaded a really cool article there actually about Christianity in the DPRK in North Korea. Um, really think everybody should read it. It's really nice. And uh, there's a nice fresh PDF there for you. Ooh, hot off the presses of the internet several years ago um yeah it's a cool article we should talk about that in the future too 
Uh, cool. Well, anyways, thanks for listening. Um, all the music that you heard is from Memoria, uh, except this last song, which is from Chumbawamba. You noble diggers all stand up now, stand up now. You noble diggers all stand up now. The wasteland to maintain, sing cavaliers by name. Your digging does maintain, and persons all defame. Stand up now, stand up now. With spades and hoes and ploughs, stand up now, stand up now. With spades and hoes and ploughs, stand up now. Your freedom to uphold, sing cavaliers are bold. To kill you if they could And rights from you to hold Stand up now, diggers all The lawyers they conjoin Stand up now, stand up now The lawyers they conjoin Stand up now To arrest you they advise Such fury they devise The devil in them lies And have blinded both their eyes Stand up now, stand up now The clergy they come in Stand up now, stand up now The clergy they come in Stand up now The clergy they come in And say it is a sin that we should now begin our freedom for to win stand up now diggers all the gentry are all round stand up now stand up now the gentry are all round stand up now the gentry are all round on each side they are found their wisdom so profound to cheaters of our ground stand up now stand up now the club is all their law stand up now stand up now the club is all their law stand up now the club is all their law to keep poor men in awe that they no vision saw to maintain such a law. Stand up now, diggers all.